Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Eve. How's it going? It's going good. It finally stopped raining, so I actually have internet for the first time in eight days. Yay. So I'm excited. Are you warm there? Everybody on the East Coast is freezing. Uh, sort of. I have like five blankets on my bed. Oh. <laughs> I should be warm. Like the weather is not objectively cold comparatively, but for California, it's cold. So everybody out here is just like, I want to die. It's so cold. <laughs> Let's go see the eclipse and then run inside. At that point, I feel like I would just watch it from the window. Be like, I'm not, it's not worth the frostbite. Yesterday, we had some fun on the internet. And um, we're bringing in our good friend, Karis Adele. Um, hi, Karis. Hey. Um, we got Yelly online last night. Who wants to like start it off and talk about what we were bringing up? I just buffered all of my tweets, so I'm going to let one of y'all take it away, since you were actually part of the active conversation, and I was at Costco. You were at Costco. <laughs> That's such a quiverful move. I know. It's the first time I've been to Costco in, like, five years, at least. I hate going, because I'm so short that I can't, like, Oh, my God, it's a nightmare. And, like, so I'm just like, no, I don't go. Oh, my yeah. God. But what happened on, on Twitter yesterday? After the mega boys from Kentucky got in the native tribal leader's face, um, during the Women's March slash Native American protests that were happening, the, the Indigenous Peoples March, I believe, it was coinciding with the March for Life. So everybody was there. Oh, God. Chris Stroop and some others um, got on Twitter to talk about exposing Christians private schools so that was really good and the hashtag I believe was expose Christian schools then Chris messaged a bunch of us last night and was like hey we should talk about homeschooling and use the same basically the same hashtag we got going on that and just started talking about our experiences in religious homeschooling and um, what was wrong with that and why it was wrong and how the religion was used as a, a way to cover up neglect and abuse. And I think we got a pretty good response. A lot of people were really shocked, which is kind of funny to me because we've been yelling about this for years. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I, I always get surprised that people, you know, think that this is a new story. But I'm glad that people are engaging it. Yeah, Curious, what was your experience with the hashtag yesterday? Yeah, so I did it a little bit different just because... One, I still am homeschooling a couple of my kids, and I homeschooled for years. And I think there's something to, like, a homeschool parent being like, yeah, this is kind of messed up, and it really needs yeah. to be fixed. Um, and so I kind of talked, because I started out as a really conservative homeschooler, and now I'm definitely not. And so I talked about kind of, like, how I moved through that and changed and, like, the problems that I found in it. Um, and so, yeah, it was... I'd never really, like, I've processed it in my head, but I've never really, like, laid it out before. And when I was, like, drafting my tweets ahead of time, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually, like, makes sense. And I can, like, see, like, the logical progression. And so, yeah, that was 
really useful. But yeah, I had a lot of people respond and really liked what I said. So that was interesting. Were they more responding to the the stories about your experiences as a homeschooler or your experience as a homeschooling parent? More as a parent and just mm-hmm. um, like uh, there were a few other like homeschooling parents that were like, yeah, it is like super white and um, kind of, you know, racist and like very religious. And um, so I think it was good to like for them to hear that, like, yeah, this really is how a large part of it is and that you can still homeschool well and be regulated and have your kids tested like that doesn't and it's okay to say like no I don't want to do this anymore like your worth as a parent Mm -hmm. isn't dependent on if you homeschool yeah the degree of your commitment to your faith and your your beliefs and how your children should be raised is not dependent on how you homeschool or whether or not (laughs) you homeschool it's right often these things get tied together yeah, that was my experience with uh, homeschooled parents when I was being homeschooled was so much of their identity and value and self-worth was like dependent on the fact that they homeschooled a certain way and believed certain things. And if you took any of that away, they would just like disintegrate and die and have no identity. <laughs> right. outside yeah, of I it. mean, it's so intertwined. And I mean, I had it was actually my therapist that was like, maybe you need to stop homeschooling. And I just. I mean, I was already on the verge of like a breakdown anyway. And I just, the thought of not doing that was so central to me, even though like I wasn't doing it well and I was exhausted that I just like cried and cried and cried because I couldn't imagine not doing it and what that would mean for me. And then like the next day I was like, oh my God, obviously I should stop this. This is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> duh. Yeah, my um, my mom, when she was pregnant with the the fourth of my siblings she wanted to put me in a, a private christian school in our town i was going into fifth grade and she kind of started looking into it a little bit and then you know, we did like a little tour of the school and came home and she caught my dad up on on what she had done that day and he got really upset he was just like no we don't do that like we're homeschoolers. Like this was like an identity for him that he wasn't willing to let go, even though he wasn't helping. (laughs) And my mom was completely overwhelmed. (laughs) Yeah. And he was just like, no, I, I can't, I can't, we can't do that. Like you need to do this because this is what God's called us to do. This is like our family thing. And so before that, my mom had assumed that it was like a yearly decision to homeschool, to keep going. And at that point, suddenly it became like lock in, this is a roller coaster ride you can't get off. <laughs> yeah, my parents started homeschooling not because they thought it was God's calling that came later, but uh, initially, now that I'm an adult and can contextualize the concept of time, uh, <laughs> it was because my mom was having an affair and my dad didn't want her to have an affair, and keeping her at home with the kids was the way to ensure that oh didn't happen. Oh my god! Yeah. Wow. I, I realized this in therapy a couple weeks ago. Oh I was like, holy shit. Wait, I, I didn't know your mom had an affair. I guess, I mean, that's yeah. not really relevant, but. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, it was before anything else happened. It was before like the turn to being radically evangelical Christians. Uh, it was back when things were normal. It's all about like controlling three. the women and keep them un- yeah. keeping them down at home. <laughs> yep. Well, speaking speaking of Karis, you've got a crazy story, a really yeah. wonderful story, and I have we've known each other on Twitter for years, years and years now. Yeah. 
And um, it's been really cool to follow your your evolution. And I'd love to like get you to just introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners, and then you know talk about where you've come because so far all they know about you is that you were a homeschool mom and you you've changed a lot. But like that's about it, and there's a whole lot more, and it's really cool. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the I was homeschooled for three years at two different times in the first two years was actually like out of not my parents not wanting to put me in black public schools and so segue into our topic about race today um yeah so today i am a liberal episcopalian feminist um i have five kids and two of them are still at home one of them is basically community college and she just is her own little creative being and is taking school slowly and doesn't seem to mind so whatever and then I have a my 13 year old is still home um but I have three kids in the public schools and they absolutely love it um I grew up in Michigan and five years ago we moved to Virginia and about three years ago we moved to Charlottesville um so that has all been very very fascinating but yeah I grew up I had experiences with 10 different denominations, like meaningful, wow. meaningful experiences with 10 different denominations from up until I was 30. Um, and all of them were various forms of evangelicalism, except for two years at a private Lutheran school, um, which hmm. maybe is technically, but I don't consider it evangelical. Yeah, it's Protestant. Right. <laughs> they, they hate Catholics, so they have that in common. <laughs> um, Good old Lutherans. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, you know, got trophies for memorizing the Bible and like... Did you do Awana? So I wasn't allowed to do Awana because I went to it as a kid and we walked in and one of the teen leaders had like blue hair and a guy, oh, and no. a guy had an earring and my mom, I mean, oh, my no. friend invited me. I'm like six years old. My friend invites me. My mom walks me in. My friend is right there. My mom sees the blue hair and the earring on the guy, and she turns around and walks me out, and I was not allowed to do Awana, and it was so embarrassing. Wow. But the Baptist church in our town had an alternative Wednesday night club program, so I did that for years, and that was... So funny. So, I mean, it was essentially Awana, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The conservative mm-hmm. appropriate version. Right. I did a wanna and and it was at a Baptist church in my town and it was so like looking back at the upper level stuff that were like based off of you know, all their levels were designed around Native American appropriation like language and terms and concepts and it was just like wow this is so racist. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, total sidebar, but keep going. Yeah. Um and so when I was I guess just over 30 um, I left evangelicalism because I realized it was making me hate everybody. I feel that. <laughs> we don't like doing that. Yeah. No, it's not fun. Well, and I, when I was writing my notes out for this, I realized that actually Twitter was the gateway, which is probably why I love Twitter so very much. Um, so yeah, I turned 30 and my oldest was 11 and my youngest was four. Oh yeah. Like I had all my kids by the time I was 26. So I had. Five kids under the age of seven when I was 26. Whoa. Which was not super, not that's a lot. super fun. That's looking a lot. Looking back, I'm like, wow. No. Um, so I turned 30, 
and my youngest was four. And so he was like out of preschool and like, and my oldest was 11. So she could babysit for like a half hour at a time. And it was the first time that I remember being like, oh, I can breathe. Like I have a half hour of space and the kids are old enough to like listen and, you know, not be like running around in toddlerhood. And so I was just kind of like, well, what do I want to do? Um, and so I joined Twitter because this is when like Christian blogging was really a thing. And I was like, oh, I'll be a blogger. And so I you know, created my Facebook and my website and all this stuff. And I started following people. And like I was still pretty conservative, but I was open to like more like social justice like type progressive Christians. And so I was like. I think it, this was, like, when Rob Bell was big, and so, like, I was reading Velvet Elvis and all that kind of stuff, and was, like, willing to question religious things, and all of the progressive Christians that, like, I was knowing and following also happened to be Democrat, and so I was like, well, this is kind of interesting, but okay, whatever. Was it, you so see, you grew up assuming that, like, Republicans, right? right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I created <laughs> my own bumper stickers. Um, during the Fred Thompson, oh, no. during the Fred Thompson campaign, like, and looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, he like campaigned on states' rights. And I was like, this is so great. And oh I'm my like, God. No. Wow. Like, wow. Wow. I like had, a um, Hillary Clinton had that thing about the vast right wing conspiracy and I like created. Oh my God. I remember that. I like had like, you could used to be able to create like little buttons, like on like message boards, like basically like bumper stickers, mm-hmm. like, you know, under your. Oh yeah. Back when Facebook I had remember that. Those. Right. And just like on different message boards, you could do all these things. And so I remember creating one that was like a proud member of the vast right wing conspiracy. So, I mean, I was like, uh-huh. I, I also had one of those. <laughs> I made myself one. I remember that. So, yeah. So like, Meeting, like, Christians that were Democrats was like, wow, this is new and interesting, but okay, like, I kind of have this... Do you even count? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Leaving the conservative, I was like, okay, this is this is okay. And then I realized, and so, like, for a period of, like, a couple years, like, I was kind of still in the evangelical church, but, like, kind of blogging. It would start up more, like, about my family and my mom and all this stuff, but it kind of turned towards religion. Well, because you were, you were processing whether or not you needed to cut your mom off. Right. And all a lot of that was tied into church stuff and, like, just weird church things I'd learned. And, like, you know, getting pregnant at 18 or 19, unmarried, like, did a number on me and mm. dealing with that kind of trauma. And I realized I was being actively taught by, like, my church and all the church environments I had, being actively taught to hate these people that I was, like, becoming like, getting to know and understand. And so they would, like, talk about how Democrats are the devil and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but I know them and they're not. And that's when I realized, Mm. like, oh, like, (laughs) I'm literally being trained to hate these people. And I was like, peace out. Othering is super powerful. And I, so I, we did, like, a Bible study at our church during this time. And I, like, actually ended up writing about it. And that was kind of the final straw. But I was speaking up about it and was, like, literally being told, you know, I don't want to silence you, but stop being so divisive. <laughs> and I was like, right, because that's divisive. right. Like, OK, so, yeah, it was... stop complicating our black and white universe <laughs> and bringing your colors <laughs> right, in here. That's... Yeah. Yeah. So I told stop having yeah. nuance. And, God. And... God, that's div- nuance is divisive. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of like the religious books I was reading happened to be like by Episcopalian people. And I was like, oh, this mm-hmm. is interesting. So I went to an Episcopalian church and I came home and told my husband, 
you know, either I'm going to be an Episcopalian or I'm done going to church because this is just, it's just, I can't do it anymore. And so he's like, well, we're going to go to church together. So I guess we're going to become Episcopalian. And so kind of at this. Stopping so divisive. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, it is. I mean, I know like hierarchy doesn't inherently mean things are good, obviously, but it is so nice knowing that like, if you have a damaging pastor, there are layers of authority over him, and it's not just some guy wanted to start a church and now they can do whatever they want. Oh, we lost like, you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, having accountability is, makes yeah. a big difference. That's one of the things that churches like the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians have going for them. Yeah. Even if their theology can be crap sometimes, at least they have like someone who can take the pastor down. Right, there's a mechanism right. for yeah, it's not the pastor of this one church is the end-all, be-all of the entire everything. And so at the same time that I was doing all this, I also started like following different black progressive Twitter people, um, mm-hmm. like Christina Cleveland. She was actually the first one, and I remember she's actually the one that like changed my mind on women pastors, too. She had done like a guest talk at um, Greg Boyd's church in Minnesota. And I remember I was out jogging. Like, I remember the exact spot on the road where I was listening to her talk, and I realized, like, she's giving a sermon, and she's a woman, <laughs> and this is a really good sermon. And then I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, obviously, she should be able to do this <laughs> everywhere. Like, what in the world? This is the dumbest thing that women can't preach. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started calling her, like, um, Austin Channing Brown and Drew Hart and Mickey Scott B. Jones. Um, so I was following them along with all these other progressive people. And what I noticed, and it was super strange, is that, like, I agreed and respected them on, like, what they said about faith and, like, social justice. But they all also just kept saying that racism was real and was a thing. And I was just like, I don't get it. Like, they're all saying it. They won't stop saying it, but they're wrong. And it was just, but I was finally was like, okay, well, I respect them enough as people. What if they're right? And so then I was like, well, you know, I'm willing to investigate this, but obviously, like, they're not right. And then, you know, you read, like, one book, and you're like, holy shit, they're right. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. Well, and, and we get we get raised in these circles where we're, we're insulated from it if you're white in ways mm-hmm. that, like, uh, you're not only taught that it doesn't exist, but you are the way you are taught to see the world creates massive blind spots so it it becomes very difficult to see it until someone like basically turns the lights on and starts showing you the room right and i think one of the reasons like that i i mean i very very quickly like i think i only read like half of the new jim crow and was like oh yeah was because of my experiences growing up so up until i was 10 i actually lived in the inner city and we were like the only white family on the block and It was, you know, the 1980s and basically like the ghetto. But I was having all of these experiences that were just general like black culture experiences. And like, obviously, it didn't shape me because I was outside of it. But I kind of had. Can I can I ask a quick question? So um, I I have come to understand that um, using the term ghetto is a is a stigmatized way of 
looking at those impoverished communities in the inner city. Yes. Is that something that you were you taught growing up that you grew up in the ghetto? Yes. As and so a, like a way of like being like, we got better than that or is, or right. is this yeah. like, so that was, yeah, I do not, I wouldn't call it that now, but like, that's what it felt like growing up in it. And that's kind of like the perception that I had and that was put on me and just was the stigma. Right. Of it. Of, yeah. Of like, we, we don't belong here. We're better than this. Right. Yeah. And so like, I mean, we lived like a block away from, um, the high school and they would like the marching band would come by like all the time and we would like ride our bikes down and like watch them practice and like I grew up thinking like oh that's just what schools do and then you know when Lemonade came out and there was this whole thing about how marching bands are like really important to like black culture I was just like oh like that's cool and I just like it didn't have the same meaning for me growing up but like I saw that um, and like I mean I had I went to a private school for a couple of years. And so I like, I had um, black friends and I would like spend the night at their house and like we had neighbors and like, I mean, I know I'm sure I said like terrible, like just really ignorant things when I was a kid. But like, I remember like asking them about their hair and their mom, you know, putting stuff in it and braiding it. And like, why do you have to put cream in your hair? And, but like, it was always, it was fascinating to me because it was a different culture and not, to me, it wasn't bad because it was different. It was just cool because it was different. Right. Well, kids aren't taught to right. hate like but that. But at the same time, naturally, right. you don't. Add, you yeah. don't. You, yeah. You're, the way that that lens of looking at at people as an other comes. Right. Well, and so at the taught how to same do that. Time, my mom was telling me that, like, mm-hmm. she was like, oh. "We're two different cultures, and we are separate, and we shouldn't mix, and blah blah blah." Oof. Wow. Like in that environment. And so like I just grew up like just with like very just all these different experiences of like race and class and this idea that we were better than them, but like we were there and we were like poor, poor. So we weren't better than them. And like I mean, there was like a drug bust across the street from our house and like the cops used our house to like perform it and to spy on them. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, like Oh, my God. That really probably, I mean, I know it did, but it, like, taught me something about, like, how I was trained to view authority and, like, all wow, of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I just had just a lot of experiences. But most of them, because I was, you know, a kid, were, like, just fun and interesting. And, like, these were the kids that I played, you know, hide-and-seek with and rode our bikes with and stuff. And so when I, as an adult, when I was reading all this stuff about race, I was really able to, like, grasp at like a really deeply personal level that like there's nothing inherently bad about blackness because I knew black people growing up and like I knew that they weren't all criminal or lazy or you know all the stuff that like I had been So the stereotypes were already complicated Mm -hmm. for you. Right and so then to hear these you know black Christians that I respected saying that race is real and reading a book on it I was able to be like oh wow there really was this entire system at work and it wasn't these people I mean I went to a church a few times with my neighbors like their black church and it's like I know like obviously like these were good people and like just trapped and now I've done you know a lot more research on my city where I grew up and just realizing the ginormous systemic issues that were there to create this really really run down abandoned town because they could and right and so when I was 10 we moved from there we literally white flighted from there because my brother got beat up and it was tied to like 
um, mysterious death of a black kid and white police and just this whole thing. Mm. And so we moved from there to a white suburb five, ten miles down the road. And it was white, 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 and very wealthy. And then that was the first time I realized, like, oh, I'm poor. Like, I didn't realize I was poor because everyone was poor where I lived. And now, you know, we're, people have, like, two, three-story houses and, like, swimming pools. And I'm just, wow, I'm in, like, Goodwill clothes before Goodwill was cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm just going to pause on that for a second. I think there's a massive, massive contingent of homeschoolers who are really, really good at thrift shopping because we grew up poor. And now it's like hipster to go to thrift shops. But like we grew up doing that because we had to. We did it first. We had to. Right. (laughs) We did it before it was cool. We went. A necessity. If it wasn't hand-me-downs from the, you know, the missionary cast-off box at church, it was. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that really shaped me. And I that I didn't realize shaped me until, like, I was 30 and doing all this because it was, you're surrounded by people that look like you. And it almost, like, confirmed all the stuff that my mom had been saying about our cultures are different. And, like, I know we were poor enough to be on food stamps and stuff, but we never were because, like, that was, like just the shame of everything and so Mm -hmm. to be put even though we were still poor we were put into like this environment where everyone around me was wealthier and like I could see the aspiration of like oh this is what we could become like my dad just you know needs to get a raise or my mom you know she ended up going back to school and getting her nursing degree and like it just made sense that like oh the white middle class is what I'm supposed to aspire to and it felt normal because this is what everybody was doing that like it just didn't occur to me and that you know this is what society says is normal and so like it never occurred to me that it was white or you know classist and all this other stuff it was just oh now I've moved from a life that we shouldn't have been in to a life that we are in and we just have to work our way up the ladder a little bit more and it was never discussed that whiteness was what made that accessible right, for you. Yeah. And so kind of when I you know, turned 30 and started like writing and reading all of this stuff, I realized that I was, you know, this 30 something year old who grew up with these racial and class experiences, but mostly in the church. Like that was my culture like I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music at all I couldn't read secular books our movies were super limited Um, you know fairly typical like fundamental conservative upbringing culturally and I took in so much Christian culture I mean I still have like all of my posters and my t-shirts and everything from like going to the concerts (laughs) and all of this (laughs) stuff like that was my identity partly because like I was smart at like knowing the Bible and got trophies and this was my, this was the way because I was so shy and like traumatized and, you know, had all this emotional abuse and all this other stuff like church and youth group was like the one cultural place where I was known and celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a really deeper part of my identity than I think a lot of the people that I went to youth group with was. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, you know, looking back at my life and realizing that this is how I grew up. And yet, you know, in in the North, in Michigan, and yet somehow I've turned out to be not only like racist, but also like 
viewed like the set like I love history so I like always read a lot about like the civil war and stuff and like viewed the south as this tragic history and like that Lee was this poor Christian this, hero. Right, this poor yeah. guy. Who just left his homeland. This, right. Like, that's all. I read everything, God. like, kid-wise about, like, the Founding Fathers. I grew up, you know, very American, kind of. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a very whitewashed. Those books are super whitewashed right. history, like, revisionist history. Yeah. yeah. And just, I'm looking at, like, how did I turn out to be, like, have all these opinions and beliefs? And that they affected how I voted. And, like, that was what I realized too, like all of this was intentional to turn me into a specific mm-hmm. kind of person. What was that? What was that specific kind of person? Um, you know, a Republican voting, you know, proud, proud member of the vast right wing conspiracy who, you know, ties to the church and gets us where we mm-hmm. are today. And so it was in, you know, but realizing like, that that is really destructive to so many people groups. I mean, destructive to anybody who's not middle class and white. And so, like, the past few years has really been, like, examining how that happened and undoing all of that in myself and, like, the biases that I have and also how do I not pass that on to my kids. Mm-hmm. So you you were there for the Unite the Right. Yes rally in Charlottesville why don't you talk about your experiences there and then I'd love to have you close out with like giving um our listeners like a 101 of where to start if they want to do the same work that you've been doing with excavating their own you know systemic white supremacy and and ingrained racism one of the things I've realized over the last couple years is I am not an activist um I definitely am more of a writer and researcher but all of this whiteness is done in the name of white womanhood, like white supremacy, like its premise is to uphold this you know, fragile white womanhood. And so it's a mythology. Right. It's, a, yeah, it's a very it's southern, not. it's a very <laughs> southern mythology of, of the like the virginity complex of like white women are these China dolls right. to be and it's, protected. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's yep. crap, but it's also like, okay, not in my name. Like I'm not going to, I can't let you do this like for me and not like say something because um so yeah so we had lived in Charlottesville Charlottesville for a year and a half when the August um 11th and 12th stuff happened um and so like out of that like I was like well there are times when even if I'm not an activist there's times when like white people really need to put their bodies on the line um and so I went down um I went down with some friends so like I wasn't alone and the experience, I was there Friday night and Saturday, in the experience of hearing the chants of the guys with the torches and seeing the flags rattling, rattling like they all, like when somebody famous would come into the park on Saturday, like they, I know when David Duke came and they all like cheered and waved their flags and just seeing the like the white pride and just the fact that they're all walking around with, like, their machine guns or whatever they had. And, like, just the intimidation. It was just a level of, like, it was just a really visceral experience of racism that, like, I never will have. And, you know, and it wasn't even directed at me, which is why I was there. Because I knew white women are the safest people, like, that aren't going to get in trouble. That was really 
just kind of put everything I'd been reading and learning and took like all of this theoretical and just made it really real that like there literally are people walking around wanting to intimidate people, wanting to kill people and are like willing to cheer for white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it wasn't shocking. It was just really like, I mean, you just feel it in your gut that like there is a lot of hate here. Um, And what I realized kind of at that moment and that weekend, even at a more ingrained level, was that the evangelical church did nothing to prepare me for this. Like, I had no answer for, like, responding to white supremacy or white hate because Mm -hmm. I was never trained that it existed. Because the evangelical church protects it and reinforces it. Right, you were only trained to uplift it. The heart of the evangelical church is whiteness, whether they want to admit it or not, it is. And so that, I mean, I was already in the process of going back to school, but that I think really solidified for me that I want to examine how my evangelical culture formed me in the way of whiteness and just the tools that it uses and how it does it mostly unconsciously that you don't even know it, but it's, it's there and it's intentional. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm at UVA and my degree is in American studies, but the official title of like my major is American studies, um, evangelicals and the cultural power of whiteness. So I am determined to dig all that shit up and yeah. Blow it up. Wow. Good. Yeah. We need Thank more you. of this. <laughs> yeah. We need more white women doing this work to understand what, what the fuck we've done to ourselves and to, right. Others. And there's always like one of the things I'm like realizing is like, as soon as you start digging, Things are way worse than you could have ever imagined. Yep. And there's like always mm-hmm. more. And like I was just with the stuff this weekend, like I realized I'm like not following that many Native American people. And so like this morning I was following more and just like there's always I mean, my personal because of my personal experience and how I've grown up is really focused on like anti blackness and white supremacy. But like white supremacy touches like every minority group and like everything. That yeah. You can never stop unlearning what you've learned and like relearning things. So for our, our listeners, how would you recommend that they, they start in this process? Because this is important work that we all need to be doing to excavate our own racism and try to disarm it. I mean, my personal thing is, you know, reading and following people just because like learning the knowledge is my personality style um but i know um austin channing's brown's new book you know i'm still here is really good i mean even like the new jim crow or morgan jerkins had a book of essays that came out last year and it was amazing i can't think of the name of it but that was really good have you heard of Layla sod's um white supremacy and me workbook i have heard of it and i there's a group that was doing it on facebook this year and i thought about joining but I, with school, I just don't know if I can. Um, mm. But I think that looks really good. I've heard really good things yeah. about it. Gosh, what else is there? Usually, like, I literally will, like, follow somebody on Twitter. And, like, and if you look, there's, like, you know, constant threads of, like, these are the other people you should be following. 
It's not terribly difficult. Basically, just <laughs> like, trying to listen outside of your, your normal circles and listen outside of your comfort right. zone. Right. I mean, you can Google, like, the PDF that Kimberly Crenshaw wrote about intersectionality. She's got a new book coming out this year. I had heard something like that from somebody, which is Yeah, really and cool. it's about intersectionality. Cool. I'm really excited. Um, but she has, somebody did the, has, like, the PDF of, like, unpacking the knapsack and, like, the white fragility book. Um, there's the white rage Book, I think mm. I'm reading one right now called um, "The Mothers of Massive Resist," or yeah, I think it's "The Mothers of Massive Resistance," and it's all about the little insidious ways that like white women upheld segregation in like the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s, and like it's so like in the tiny details of that it's not like the laws; it's people like obeying the yeah. laws and like upholding them. It's what's it's just just unbelievable it's it's systemic and right. everywhere like it's ridiculous it's really important to understand those things and to like learn how to see it i mean it's it's just learning how to pay attention to the things that you've mm-hmm. been trained to ignore yeah your entire life is really it's it's one of those things that's like hard on the ego because it makes you <laughs> right. realize that you have been You've been really self-absorbed and mm-hmm. um, are bad at paying attention to things that are outside of what immediately affects you. And um, that's humbling, yeah. but it's really important to get past that ego fragility to right. yeah. but, and there, work, to do the work. Yeah. yeah. There also is something that I found too, to like, it's kind of a relief to be like, I don't know this. And it's okay. And mm-hmm. I can just go learn it. Like, I don't have to be the expert. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Like, it feels really nice to not feel like I have to, like, one up black people with, like, how much I know or whatever, because, like, I'm never going to know as much as them or have the experiences that they do. And it's like, I can see how it can be hard. And I mean, sometimes it is, but it also, there is, like, this just the sense of relief and just, like, I'm just here to learn and to work on myself and not to, like, have to worry about like leading other people or that kind of a thing yeah it's not your job right not your yeah place. yeah well thank you for joining us karen do you have any other questions you want to ask karis or anything else you want to add what what got you past the like resistance of working on yourself and realizing oh i'm part of this what how did you overcome that to continue to learn things because i feel like that's something a lot of people that stops a lot of people is like feeling really guilty about upholding the system they had no idea and then they're like i'm just done i can't deal with having that and so they just stop what got you past that there's two things one was it was actually like really really quickly into reading the new jim crow um like i think i was maybe a quarter of the way through it and it was awful it was it's just so bad. It's so depressing. It's just, it's so awful. And I remember reading it and I wanted to stop and like throw the book across the room and just be like, this is, I'm not doing this. But she was talking about stuff in the past. And I was like, this has already happened. This is already going on. Like there's nothing I can Mm -hmm. do about it, but I can learn. And so it was just, this happened. I need to learn about it. And so I was able to kind of shut off my emotions that way and just I mean I plowed through the book I really should go back and read it slower but I was like I'm just gonna finish this because this was real and I need to know about it and that was a way to like Mm -hmm. shut that off and then the other thing I um, realized along the way my great-grandpa was in the KKK like in the 20s in Indiana and like 
I mean, I remember my grandma saying stuff. My parents have obviously said terrible things about race and stuff. And at some point, I finally realized, like, this is the legacy I was given, but it does not have to be the legacy that I maintain or pass on. And so Mm -hmm. I have the opportunity to change, Mm -hmm. and I can either choose to do so or not. Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of our motivation for doing this podcast and for doing right. a change yep. in the work on ourselves that yep. we've been doing has been just like the cycle stops here. Like yeah. we cannot let this keep going. It has dominated so many generations. The more I study and the more I learn, and I'm especially now that I'm taking like all of these like really in depth race classes with like really like well educated black professors and all of this stuff. I'm realizing like there's, I'm never going to know it all. Like it's just impossible. I'm never going to have the experiences they do. And so like my goal isn't to be like an expert on race or to know all of the things. It's to just keep learning and knowing as much as I can. And just, you know, there's, there's no end goal of like mastering it. It's just, okay, it's a new day and I can learn one more thing. Yeah. Once you realize that like, being a student is a lifelong right. commitment and yeah. and being humble is a lifelong commitment. It just comes together. Yeah. Thank you for doing that work and thank you for sharing it with people on Twitter. One of the you've you've put together some really good um Twitter threads and we'll try to link to those in the, the podcast notes when we put this up. Um is there anything else you wanna plug for people to find you or um support your work? Um, I don't think so. I mean I have a website but I don't use it very often right now. Um I put stuff up on Medium every once in a while. Um, but you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just me. What's your handle on the Twitters? It's just Carisadel. C A R I S A D E L. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thanks today. for talking. Yep, yeah. Thanks for this was yeah. fun. I'm Thank you for joining us today. The music you hear in this episode is Janet by the Heavens from the, their album Love Songs. If you want to support the podcast through our Patreon, ask us a question, or follow us on Twitter, you can check out our website at kitchentablecult.com. And big thanks to Aaron Bechtel, as always, for producing these episodes. We love you, Aaron. We love you, Aaron. Bye. Bye. Bye.